Hello, my name is Robbie Ventura, and I will be your host of the Velocity Cycling Podcast. We have an incredible show for you today. We're going to pit two of the greatest runners of all time against each other in a discipline that they're not really an expert at, the 800 meter. Who are we going to choose? None other than Usain Bolt, the fastest man alive, and of course, the greatest endurance distance runner ever, Iliad Kipchoge the only person to run under two hours for a marathon. Now, the 800 distance is an interesting one. It requires both the energy systems of the glycolytic or the anaerobic side that Usain Bolt is the master of, as well as the endurance or the aerobic side of which Elliot Kipchoge is the master of. I'm not going to figure this out on my own. I'm going to bring in two incredible experts. One, Dr. Phil Skiba, who has worked with Nike on the Breaking Two project and has worked with Iliad Kipchoge in some of his training. And of course, I'm gonna bring in Sebastian Weber, who's really understands exercise physiology as well as the metabolic energy systems pretty much as good as anybody else. He's worked with professional cycling teams on the Pro Tour as well as professional and world champion triathletes. Together, we're gonna to try to answer the question, A, who's gonna win the race when they're both at their peak Usain, the best sprinter, and Kipchoge is the best marathon runner. Then we're going to model out if they trained for a year and both of them focused 100% on the 800, would the results be any different? Without any further ado, we're going to start with Dr. Phil Skiba. And the question, who will win the 800, Usain Bolt or Iliad Kipchoge? Hello, my name is Robbie Ventura, and I am your host here at the Velocity Cycling Podcast, where our one goal is to get you to fast faster. There is no one way to have great cycling performance. What works for some of us may not work for others. We really want to expose you to some of the greatest minds in sports performance, and hopefully we can try to figure out what works best for you to meet your goals and to meet your genetic potential. We're going to do one job, and we're going to try to do it the best we can, and that is get you to fast faster. Hello, and welcome to the Velocity Cycling Podcast. My name is Robbie Ventura, and I will be your host, and we have a great show for you today. We're going to ask a pretty cool question. Who is the greatest runner on the planet? Well, we know the fastest runner on the planet is Usain Bolt, who's got the world record. We know the greatest marathoner on the planet is Iliad Kipchoge, but what if they raced an 800 meter all out track race? Who would win that? Would it be the sprinter or would it be the marathoner? Well, I'm not gonna answer this question by myself. I'm bringing in um, a great friend of mine and an incredible sports scientist, Dr. Phil Skiba, who had the opportunity to work with Kipchoge, which is gonna be great insight, um, on the Breaking Two project with Nike, back in 2017, where they came within a whisker of breaking that incredible two-hour barrier. Dr. Phil Skiba, thank you for being with us. I always love talking to you and hearing your insight. You continue to teach me and educate me on a regular basis, and I'm really excited about this topic. How about you? Yeah, yeah, it's good to see you, buddy. Absolutely. Um, so tell us a little bit, give us some insight into Kipchoge. Um, we all know how, what an incredible specimen he is, Talk about his personality and some of those elements that really make him such an incredible competitor, not only a physical specimen, but also a great competitor. 
Yeah. I mean, Elliot's an incredibly nice and genuine guy, you know, um, you know, the, the first time I met him, uh, we were at Nike HQ and we were talking about this trip to Africa that we were going to take, you know, to, to film the movie and, and, and to work with them, you know, hands on you know, in Africa and see what it was like on a day to day basis. And so, you know, he and I sit down and um, he says to me, um, no, this is going to be great. You're going to come to Africa and we're going to train together. And we kind of look at each other for a second and then we both start laughing. And he, <laughs> as well, he says, you'll probably ride in the car and I'll train, you know, <laughs> and, you know and, and, uh, but, but you just, uh, a, a very funny, very genuinely nice guy, but you know, his outlook is really interesting because it's rare. That, and, and this is in general, a, a feature of a lot of the Kenyan athletes I met. Um, they're very humble people. You know, you'll often hear Elliot say things like, you know, a hundred percent of me is not even worth, you know, 1% of the team. Because when you see these guys out there training together, um, you know, they're constantly, they're supportive of each other. They're constantly egging each other on. They're con- it's a very, it, it's a uniquely positive work environment. You know, these guys live out in their camp in the middle of nowhere in rural Kenya, um, running on these roads that, you know, are just potholes and mud and just, you know, totally unimproved. Um, and they're all guys that, that, that kind of take that to heart and really, and really push each other, you know, to, to, to work through those conditions and, and, and do something special. Yeah, de- definitely two special athletes for sure. And and I don't know um, much about Usain Bolt as a person, but I will tell you, he seems to have an incredible passion for what he does. He seems to have enjoy the process of, of, of becoming the fastest man in the world. And both of these guys, um, they're smiling a lot. I think I think they're they're passionate and they love what they do. And I think it's part of the reason why they've had success, not just once but year after year after year of being on top. And we all understand how difficult it is to get to the top. I think it's a lot tougher to stay at the top. And these two have done that for some time. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing about Usain Bolt is that, um, you know, we think of athletes training constantly trying to stay on the top. The the trick to staying a great sprinter is not training a lot uh, because training increases your aerobic capacity. And that's not what you want to be as a sprinter. You want to save all that explosive energy and not have it converted over to more endurance-oriented energy. Um, and that's uh, so. You know, Usain Bolt has o- o- always joked about how little he trains, but the reason why he's so good is because he trains so little. Absolutely, we're we're going to get a little into that when we start talking about um, the answer to the second question. First question is: In their prime, who wins an eight hundred? Uh, and the second question I want to talk about, Doc, is if these two athletes trained for an entire year with the number one focus of doing an 800 meter, would the results be any different? So let's start with the first question. Let's start with some of the key elements from a scientific perspective, from a physiology perspective, from a math perspective, which you're incredible at. Um, Let's talk about their performances. For starters, Bolt can run at 28 miles an hour or nearly 28 miles an hour, the world record in a 958. I mean, that is absolutely moving, and that requires a certain metabolic contribution. Um, Talk a little bit about the type of um, metabolic contribution that it takes to run at that speed. Yeah, so what you want to think about is is the muscle itself, right? And when you look at the muscle, what kind of fibers is it made up of? Um, In sprinters, we traditionally think of those guys as having a lot of what are are called fast twitch muscle fibers. These are fibers that are very, very strong. Um, They can generate a lot of power for a very, very short period of time before they kind of just fatigue and punk out. 
Um, and so, you know, they're not surrounded with a lot of blood vessels to give them more oxygen. They don't have a lot of mitochondria to provide them more energy. Um, so what they got is kind of what they got. Um, and that's why we say sprinters are born, not made. Um, because metabolically speaking, there's very little going on. You've got this pool of creatine that's going to give you your energy, creatine phosphate, and that's what you've got to blow over the next, you know, 100 meters or 200 meters or something like that. I'm just going to bring you up to speed here, folks. We have none other than Sebastian Weber from inside joining our discussion on Kipchoge versus Bolt in the 800 meter race. And the nice thing about Sebastian Weber is um, he's been on the show before. He brings a nice understanding of the metabolic component. Um, I've said this before. Uh, I continue to learn from Sebastian as well on the contribution uh, and the importance of the metabolic engine as it relates to trying to figure out how to take performance to the next level. And Sebastian, we were just talking about the contribution of energy for a sprinter and how 95% of that energy for Usain Bolt, or maybe even more than that, um, comes from the glycolytic um, and the creatine phosphate energy system. You want to expand at all on that in terms of like some of the sprinters that you've worked from and, and how you can kind of figure that out? How do you measure where the energy is coming from? Well, in general, um, measuring creatine phosphate is something really difficult. Um, measuring the glycolytic component in terms of VLA max, you know, has been evolving uh, in the sport in the past in the past uh, years. Um, that's kind of uh, you know, kind of established, but maybe not established. But there are some good concepts how to do that. Um, creatine phosphate is more difficult, and there are also two aspects to it. One is um, the maximum, you know, power that an athlete is able to produce, which would, you know, um, refer to the maximum speed at which you can break down creatine phosphate. And the limiting factor here is not how long it takes to, you know, take energy out of creatine phosphate. The limiting factor is here more like neuromuscular and, you know, force production and those kind of things. But the other thing about creatine phosphate that, you know, it's important to understand that it's like a bucket of energy. And when it's empty, it's kind of empty. Like you have to stop. You have to, you know, you have to you have to rest or you have to decrease your uh, intensity in order for the aerobic system to restore it. So one very important piece here when it comes to 100 meter running is being able to understand how big is that bucket? Because if like theoretically, if the athlete would only run on creatine phosphate, he would last maybe 60 meters or maybe 70 meters or something, right? But he would not last for the, for the, whole, for the whole race. Uh, so this already gives us an idea about um, the, the issue or, the, or the, you know, the fact that the bigger the creatine phosphate store, the better for the 100 meter run because you last longer into the race on creatine phosphate. Okay, so we got the we got we got the understanding of the energy and where it comes from for a hundred meter dash. Now let's talk about a marathon, um, the other end of the spectrum, right? So we understand what's fueling Bolt and, and where his energy is coming from. Where is the energy coming from on the Kipchoge side? Uh, it, it's entirely, uh, you know, aerobic in nature. When you look at the great marathon runners, and actually, um, there's an open access paper that uh, uh, that you know we published from Breaking Two, that uh, we profile. We can't say exactly who is who, but we profile all the athletes that we tested in preparation for Breaking Two, and we look at their different physiological characteristics. Um, and so, what's interesting about that is that you need three things, right? And in general, we call it the 80-80-180 rule. Okay, 
that you have to have a VO2 max of about 80 or 85. Um, you need to have your lactate threshold occur at about 80 to 85% of that VO2 max. And you need a running economy of about 180 mils. Um, and that combination gets you to, to, gets you to the marathon in about two hours. Um, and so, so that, that's been established since the early 1990s. Mike Joyner published the first modeling paper on that. And that's how we selected people for the, for the task was who's got the engine for this and who's economical enough to be able to handle that for two hours. So just to, just to paraphrase that in some, I mean, I, I, I love the fact that we have such an incredible amount of science and, and, and physiology going on here, but for the, for, 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 for the, just to break that down, the energy comes from the aerobic system, not the anaerobic system primarily. I mean, there is some contribution from the anaerobic system, of course, at times, but for the most part, it's the slow twitch muscle fiber. It's the fat burning capacity of these athletes that fuel their, that, that the energy comes from for these events that are two, three, four hours in duration. Yeah. Which is the exact opposite, right? Slow twitch fibers versus fast twitch fibers fat versus, you know, creatine phosphate and carbohydrate. Yeah. Well, you know, the way you want to think about it is that, you know, there, when you look at human physiology, when you look at the way athletes' bodies actually work, there's different, we call them discontinuities where there's a big change, right? So when you're running pretty easy, you're using primarily fat for fuel. You're not making a lot of lactate. You're just cruising along. When you go hard enough that you have generated a little bit of lactate, the reason why that happens is that you can't, meet the energy demand just by burning fat alone. You have to start burning some carbohydrates. And at the same time, you start recruiting more of those slightly faster twitch fibers that aren't as endurance oriented. And that's one of the things you see in these, you know, in these runners, um, or really any great endurance athlete, is you're looking to find a place where that switchover happens at a higher level. Because everyone carries a lot of fat, right? Even skinny people have quite a bit of fat on board. Um, but Everyone has a limited amount of carbohydrate on board. The average person has about 20 miles worth of glycogen in their muscles. And that's a problem because the marathon's 26 miles long. <laughs> so, Sebastian, now we have the 800, right? We know that the marathon is aerobic. We know the sprint is anaerobic. Where does the 800 lie? And who do you, you know, like obviously, you know, what, what contribution? Is it more on the glycolytic side or is it more on the aerobic side? Tell us. So when you look at those three systems, the majority of the energy comes already from the aerobic system in terms of like, well, the majority, it's about 50%. So it's the majority of all those three systems, right? Um, and if you think about it, that, you know, the auction uptake takes, you know, not so much time to, 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 to really catch up um, right? and, and really being able to contribute, especially when you talk about a, on, on a muscular level, how long it takes for the aerobic system to, you know, produce a decent amount of energy. Um, you know, after, after 40 to 60 seconds, you, have, you, have, uh, you, are, you are close, but somehow close to, to the maximum already uh, within the 90% range. And so, yeah, it is approximately 50% aerobic for the 800 meter. And then you're talking about 30 to 35%. Obviously, it depends on, you know, the metabolic profile of the athlete, but you're talking about 30, 35% from the glycolytic system. And then the remaining part is, is basically, you know, depleting, um, more or less, or completely depleting your creatine phosphate system. 
So, so in, in some here, we have kind of the middle of the road, right? We have, we're picking the distance where they both, both these contributions are important and both of them are good at, at the opposite. So I think the 800 distance is probably a good competition to, to, to understand that they both have gifts on the opposite ends. And now we're choosing kind of the middle of the road here to determine, um, um, the, the winner of this race. Um, let's go to VO2 max just for a second. Talk about the VO2 max um, importance across these three disciplines. How important is VO2 max in a 100-meter dash? Very little. That's the interesting thing about VO2 max um, in general is that if you look at the big picture, what you'll find is that people with a really low VO2 max are not very good endurance runners. People with a high VO2 max are going to be better endurance runner in general. But if you take a bunch of people with a high VO2 max, VO2 max no longer tells you who the best is. And that's what's so interesting about it. And the reason for that is that it's like a Ferrari, right? A Ferrari doesn't have great fuel economy, right? A great marathon runner or a great you know, guy with a really high VO2 max has got a really big engine, right? But he might not be so economical. And economical becomes important if you got to go for two hours. Yep. So, so we're going to get to economy in a second. You're jumping ahead of me, Doc. Okay, Sorry. you're jumping ahead of me. No problem. But I want to talk about. So, just from a standpoint of, of explaining VO2 max, I'll just make it as, as, as obvious as possible. It's basically um, the amount of, of of oxygen that your body can process and use, um, and it's basically the delta between the amount of oxygen that you're coming that's coming in versus the oxygen that's coming out. And that difference is the amount of oxygen that your body is using. And when you're at absolute highest level capacity, what is that number, right? Like what, if you're taking in six, if you're going as fast as you can for a two or three minute effort, you're taking in 6,000 milliliters and you're exhaling two, you're using 4,000 milliliters of oxygen. And that's kind of your capacity of, of usable oxygen. And you divide that by your weight in kilograms and you get a relative VO2 number. Now, that oxygen is obviously very, very important, as Dr. Skiba said, in longer distance events, not quite as important in the 100-meter dash. Sebastian, how important is it in the 800-meter? You know, when you, we just said that approximately 50% of the energy comes from the aerobic system. So if you're able to increase your VO2 max, you're increasing the main contributor to this 800 meters. So long story short, it is, it is very important. You cannot run... Um, you, you cannot, you know, compete on the highest level, become world champion, or you know, somewhere in the elite level, if your VO2 max is is not super high. It's like the VO2 max of an 800 meter runner, you know, is very similar to what, what Phil just said. It's like to like you know the best marathon runner, 80, 85. Uh, maybe a, maybe a tiny bit lower if you think about maybe an 800 meter is a little bit heavier. There might be a small tendency splitting hairs that that the, because it's it's per kilogram maybe a little bit less because they maybe carry a little bit more muscle um, than, than a, a marathon runner. But yeah, you're talking about the same ballpark. So there's not a significant difference here. If that's the case, if that's the case, Kipchoge gets an advantage here. So on the contribution side, we'll call it a, a draw. On the VO2 max side, we know Kipchoge is probably in the 85 range. I know that we don't have the exact number, but it's probably 85 to 90, somewhere in that range. And if you're talking about a guy that's 5'6", 115 pounds and has an 85, Bolt is 6'5", 207 pounds. There's no chance his VO2 max is over 65, correct? 
No, most likely not. No, <laughs> most likely not. I'm going to put it at fifty. Up to the chest, mean? maybe. Maybe up to the chest. <laughs> got another problem too, right? It's not just about the size of the aerobic engine; it's how quick you can crank up the throttle. And one of the things we know about these great Kenyan athletes that we've tested is that they're when you look at how quickly that ramp comes up, it comes up over a period of 12 seconds or so. All right. That's called the time constant. That's how long does it take to come up to about 66%? And that takes about 12 seconds. So four or five times that gives you how long you're at full blast with the aerobic system. So by the time we get to a minute, by the time he, you know, he, he gets past 400 meters, his, you know, his, that system is humming. It is way slower in, in, in sprinters. And so that's going to be a real challenge for Bolt is because he can't ramp up. The, he's, a, he's got a smaller engine aerobically, and it's going to take him way longer to crank it up. Okay, so we got a slight advantage on the VO2 max side for Kipchoge. A big, Sebastian, a big advantage. Okay, fine. So we got Kipchoge gets a point on that. Now, let's talk about economy. Doc, you were talking a little bit about this um, in a little couple, couple minutes ago. Let's talk about the other elements that make great runners great runners, right? We know VO2 max plays a role. We know the contribution of energy plays a role. What about the other components, even from a standpoint of, 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 of bone length to, um, to elasticity, to all these other components, how they regulate heat? Talk about some of the other elements of economy that Kipchoge and Bolt both have in excess, and then which elements might hurt or help them in this 800? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things with respect to economy. You know, there's been a lot of good studies done with things like high-speed cameras, where they say, you know, what are the what are the components that make you more economical or not as a distance runner? And, and they find interesting things. Um, what, what they find is that if you look at um, just globally, if you look at fast runners and you know, like short, you know, middle distance runners and long distance runners, and, and Jack Daniels of Daniels Running Formula, the famous book, did these studies in the 1980s, and what he found out was that the Endurance runners, the marathon runners, et cetera, are more economical than you might expect running marathon distance, but they're not so good at high speed. And you find exactly the difference. The, the opposite for you know, the middle distance runners and, or the sprinters is that at higher speeds, they're more economical than you expect and, and, and less so for the other guys. So, so some part of it you know, is, you know, is inborn and some part of it is training. But the other part of it is um, you know, we want to look at their mechanics and say what's more economical than not. And that's super hard to do um, because when you look at them on high-speed cameras, the difference between a really economical runner and a non-economical runner is like a degree or two here or there. How straight is their leg when it hits the ground and where do they actually put it on the ground? Um, and that's hard to do. Now, now, when you look at someone like Bolt, uh, we do know that in general, longer stride lengths are less economical, but that's the, the quickest way to increase speed is by increasing your stride length. Now, for Bolt, that doesn't matter over 100 meters. He's interested in getting there the fastest. He's not interested in being economical. But over, over 800, he's got a bigger problem on his hands. So economy um, obviously gets more important from a standpoint of, 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 of fuel usage and, and aerobic contribution um, when it gets long. But I'm, obviously, in shorter events, it's... And, and when you look at actually, and it's interesting, when you look at economy, say, in sprinters, um, the economy, meaning how much of the um, their speed comes from the elastic rebound of like their Achilles tendon and their ligaments and things, that goes up the faster they go. So as you get up to, you know, approaching your maximum speed, you're getting more and more elastic spring from your step. So they do have that going for them in the shorter events. Okay. Um, care to comment on economy, Sebastian? 
Well, I think one thing we should take into account here is that when we talk about things like VO2max, and so we talk about per kilogram body weight. And I think another aspect here is that, you know, the guy's running at somewhere north of seven meters per second, hopefully. And bald creates also more drag. So, um, like, when you, when you talk about energy per kilogram body weight, but it's similar to cycling, but drag comes in, like, like aerodynamic drag starts to play a role here and it does a little bit then my take on economy is also yeah we, like you would also need to think a little bit about bolt is pretty huge compared to kipchoge yeah i mean there, there was actually good work <laughs> on this in the 1970s where they tested this and, and found yeah. it's not a small amount it's seconds yes 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 it's quite significant yeah so um yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why in Breaking 2, the biggest thing we did for, I mean, I love to talk about the way we trained Elliot and the other guys, but the truth is the biggest thing we did for them was put a stack of pacers in front of them to break yeah. the, that took minutes off of the marathon time. Yeah. yeah. At these speeds, I mean, they're going 13 plus miles an hour. There is definitely drag and, and you're right, 800 meters, even faster than that. Obviously, drag plays a, a, a big role and you can even see that with, with um, you know, Obviously, even the clothes are starting to change in, in track and field because they understand the importance of drag. Um, and by the way, and, th and this has been the case huh? in the early 2000s, if you remember, like the full body suits yeah. for, this, for the Australian Games. Remember that? Yeah. That was all about drag already. I'm yeah. with you. I hear you. And now they're sticking the numbers to their legs. In Breaking 2, which we didn't make a big thing about, but you can see it for a moment in the movie, we actually made these shark skin sort of... Um, you know, pieces of fabric that we spray glued onto their legs because it helped reduce the drag because the fastest thing moving through the air is their leg on the swing. Um, you know, it's difficult to say how much, how much gain that gets you, but, but yeah, we, we were thinking about all those things. Love it. Love it. Okay. So, um, we're going to, we're going to kind of jump to this, to this next piece. And that is, um, if we're looking at, um, who's going to win this event, we got to take past performances into consideration. Um, you guys have done a great job kind of laying out the physiology requirements and kind of the things to consider when that, when that comes. But now we actually have to look at some of the times that these guys have actually run um, and outside of their, their um, main events. So Kipchoge um, has ran a 350 mile which is just nuclear speed. And, he, and if you just cut that in half, you got a 155.8 pretty much 800 meter, um, which is, which is obviously very, very fast. Now bolts recorded 800 meter is only a 210, but, um, a lot of people said that that wasn't absolutely all out and he had done zero endurance training as, as Dr. Skiba talked about earlier. So a, a better number is his 45, 28, 400 meter. And I think Kipchoge's 400 meter, um, just from us, from, from just a little bit of research on his training, right around 60 seconds. So that's a pretty big delta when it comes to 40 for, to a, from a 400 meter. That's a 15 second lead that Bolt would potentially have on Kipchoge. But again, his best 800 meter is a, there's a 210 and Kipchoge's is a 155. Um, so with those two things in mind, kind of where are you guys leaning for, a, for now again, we're not talking about train. We're talking about when Bolt won the gold medal in the, in the, in the 100 meter and Kipchoge did his sub two hour marathon, if they got on the line right now, right then and raced as hard as they could for 800 meters, knowing what you guys know, what do you think the result would be? 
I mean, you know, it, it, it's actually, you can answer this question with a little bit uh, of data. So if you look at like Bolt's best 100 through 400 times, right, and, and you run a model, um, I come up with uh, 114.5 seconds, right? So, so, so 155 um, in the best sprint shape of his life. Um, we know that Elliot is probably capable of a, a 155 or faster 800. Um, you know, if you just think about his best marathon performance at, at 350, and he can pretty regularly bang out 60 second intervals, you know, for 400 on the track. Um, so to me, um, you know, you, you, you're not gonna get Elliot too much faster than that. But I'm not sure that you can take a sprinter. Sprinters are born and not made, right? They're built with these gifts, with these giant, you know, fast twitch muscle motor units. They can go really fast. The idea that we're going to take, you know, 10, 15 seconds off a bolt over 800, that's that's a big lift. So so without any training, you're taking Kipchoge. And yeah. with training, you're taking Kipchoge. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Sebastian, what, what do you think, think, Sebastian? Come on. <laughs> I'm pretty much on the same page when it comes to uh, the untrained status. Um, I, I also did my calculations here in my little modeling and I come out for Kipchoge somewhere in the ballpark of 154 uh, for the 800 approximately. That goes with a view to max of 85, so really like best performance. Okay. Right? Um, I, yeah, that's somewhere in this ballpark, maybe one, maybe maybe one fifty-five, maybe one fifty-four, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, this bolt for the untrained, I have him uh, significant slower. <laughs> I see that like untrained, I think um, it's difficult to break two minutes for him on the on the eight hundred. Um, I don't really see that. And that is based on a VO2 max of uh, 52.5. So just in the middle of what you, what you might think. And obviously it gets a little bit better, better if, he, if he goes to, to a VO2 max of like uh, 55. It buys him, buys him some seconds and so on and so forth, right? Um, but that's, that's about it. Um, and I think he has the biggest gains to make by training. Um, I, can, I think he can almost shave 10 seconds of the 800 meters. Uh, I agree. When, when we assume that he can bring up his view to max by maybe 10 milliliters, which is a lot if you think about total for, for his body weight. But with decent training, I mean, even though he's a sprinter, like, you know, he should react pretty good to some, high, to, to some higher intense intervals. And if you give him some time, I, I give him 10 milliliters more for trainability. Um, and I don't see, because... As Phil said, you are born as a sprinter, so I don't see Kipchoge ramping up his glycolytic system and secreting phosphate a lot by training. There's not so much adaptation going on there, so he's kind of maxed out for me. Um, but still, but still, even 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 if I give him, if even if I give Bolt a VO2 max of like 65 by training, he loses by two seconds to Kipchoge. So he closes the gap. Right? Yeah, but now he's think about not going to be Now this now Bolt trains for a year. He's going to lose some body mass for sure, right? He's not going to go into this thing at 207. He's going to go into this thing at 188, maybe 190. A lean, mean fighting machine. Now I'm a, I come from a sprinting background. I'm cheering for the sprinter. And two things you guys didn't talk about. Number one, Bolt has incredible has an incredible start, right? He's also has a lot of experience on the track doing track starts. There are some elements there that I think will help him potentially just with the comfort level. 
even the, the, the fact of going to the track, doing a performance on the track. Now, I know that Kipchoge has won track events in the past, and he's got a lot of experience as well on the track. But from just a standpoint of shorter events, the pressure, the excitement, having to perform on the dot. A marathon, you, obviously, you have to perform in the beginning, but there's still a little bit of leeway for kind of getting yourself up to speed. Okay, timeout. We got a timeout here. Are they time trialing or are they racing against each other? Next to each other, the intimidation factor, the size, the hulking beast next to you. Because if, 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 if Bolt goes out too fast, but still manages, and Kipchoge is behind him, he's drafting him, and that's like running behind a house, right? Oh, no, so, there's no drafting. No chance, no chance. Oh, no, that's a good point, though, man. Wow, you're right. I forgot about the draft. And it's score one for Sebastian. Right. Here's the other thing, too, is that, you know, I, I've got to see, you know, Elliot's, um, Elliot's mindset up close. So before we uh, went and did Breaking 2, we did a test event on the Monza track where we got everyone there and we ran them and we wanted to see how everyone would do. And the goal was we're just going to try and run just under a two-hour pace. We want to do about an hour for the um, – you know, for the, for, 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 uh, for the half marathon. And, and what you saw was Elliot ran, I think at 59, 17, right. He was picking it up, right. Because he wanted, I mean, on, st on some level, he wanted to put his stamp on this, right. He's racing against Zerzane Tedesse, who is, you know, he, he, at the time he held the half marathon world record. Right. And so, you know, Elliot kind of comes in there and just kind of, I think psychologically wanted to say, you know, you don't scare me. You know, I got this. And so I can, I, I, I don't imagine him being very intimidated by Bolt. I think he walks out there with that big smile on his face and just says, I got your number, buddy. And, and let's see what happens. <laughs> well, I, I think it was a great conversation. I think it would be an incredible um, experiment. I, I appreciate you guys um, giving us your weighing in. Uh, we have two for Kipchoge. Uh, we have three for Kipchoge if they raced right now. And we have two against one for Kipchoge over Bolt if they were both trained up as much as they possibly could be for an 800 meter. I, I'll tell you, I mean, you know, knowing Elliot, you know, you always want to see the guy win. My heart is with Kipchoge. I am a very, very, very poor endurance runner. You know, I tried to run with those guys in Eldoret and I lasted about, you know, 50 yards. <laughs> <It's> no joke. <laughs> but before we close here, I just want to bring this back to cycling to some degree. I think one of the one of the biggest challenges we all face when we work with different athletes is everybody kind of wants to do the thing that that they're not necessarily the greatest at, right? I, you know, these, these endurance athletes want to try becoming a little bit of a better sprinter. And some of these sprinters always want to try to become a little bit better endurance because if they make it to the end of these bigger races, they have less sprinters to deal with. And some of these endurance athletes, if they get in small little breakaway groups, like the world championships and different events, they have to have enough kick to be able to win out of a small group. So I think one of those things and one of the challenges for Kipchoge versus Bolt, if they ever did this, they could potentially ruin their careers if they train for the opposite energy systems. And, and you see it all the time in professional cycling where these sprinters just get a little bit slower because they start adding all this volume, which helps them out. And then you see some of these other athletes that work a little bit too hard in their sprint and they lose a little bit of that um, aerobic capacity. So talk about that balance and, and, and how, how difficult that balance is when you're working with sprinters um, and trying to get them to the finish of, of longer, harder races. 
I mean, you know, it's interesting when you look at the original, you know, studies that were done looking at, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you guys at VQ know all about it. When we talk about critical power, right, your sustainable power versus the W prime, this battery that, that contains your sprint capacity. And what you see is that you, in most of those studies, when you increase, um, when you increase one, when you increase critical power, the, the other has to go down, right? It's, it's a mathematical certainty. Now, there have been studies that show you can maintain or increase your sprint ability. Um, but those almost always come at the expense of dropping out your aerobic capacity. And for a cyclist, a cyclist that could be catastrophic, right? If you're not there in in the final four, you know, the final thousand meters of that race, you're it's over for you. Um, what I think is important to talk about, Doc, though, is this is for people that are fairly trained. When you get athletes that are fairly new to the sport of cycling or or not necessarily as trained up. They can increase that VO2 max at such a rate where both of those elements can improve. Oh, absolutely. Especially early on in their careers. Like you can lift the whole curve um, okay. because they get stronger and they get more aerobic and all those kind of things. But once you're pretty fit, then it's, it becomes more of a trade-off. That's absolutely now, right. Now, Sebastian, you work with a lot of pro cycling teams, and I'm sure you're always playing that balancing game with some of these athletes. Talk about some of those conversations and how you manage to, 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 to get them get them to be fast enough or is that just one of these guessing games that there's really no perfect answer well obviously the idea is, is to not have it as a guessing game right and one of the most common mistakes i think in cyclists and i'm having this conversation over and over again i just said one last week is that exactly what you say a sprinter like a road sprinter so it's not a real sprinter anyway right it's the one eyed in between the blinds when it comes to sprinting right uh, the, bolt. right and not talking a track spinder right so yeah. so um you know, when they try to increase their aerobic capacity, performance, whatever you want to call that, what happens exactly what you say, now you are not on the podium anymore in the sprint. In the sprint, you're maybe top 10 at its best. And what you want, on the other hand, is instead of, you know, passing the KOM at position 120, you now pass it at 80. So you are like mediocre in kind of both events. And if you look at the post of professional cycling and you look at the, at the fastest sprinters really dominated the biggest sprints, Kittel, Cavendish, Greipel, you know, they don't care about, like nobody's even talking about, you know, nobody's asking the question, what position did they pass the KOM today, right? It's not important. So don't even try that. It is different when you come to guys like Wout van Aert or Mathieu van der Poel or, you know, guys who go like in kind of the, 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 the races like the classics and they, and they want to have some sprint capacity and some top end speed and some top end power, but they still have, and Wout van Aert last year was an excellent example of how, to, how you can manage, how you, how you can balance these things out. Because like you, you, you saw him, he was riding on the top of the pack in, you know, in the, in the climbs, leading the jumbo train into the climbs and still sprinting on, on, on the next day or the, or, the, or the previous day. So, but it is a very, very fine line and there are not many athletes that bring both, right? They like, you either have like complete sprinters and they don't even have, they don't even have VO2 max that brings them close to even finishing a stage or you have these Kipchoge kind of guys like highly endurance trained, but then obviously nothing is happening in the sprint. And it's very difficult to find those exceptional cyclists who can do, you know, uh, a little bit the best of both worlds. And when you have an athlete, um, like, I mean, Peter Sagan is a great example of somebody that was able to, to, to do both of those things, but as his career carries on and as Walt Van Aert's career carries on, um, 
you know, j- just from a standpoint of what you've seen in the lab, as well as what you've seen, you know, in, in professional cycling, that speed tends to leave them a little bit as the years and years of aerobic work start to hold, start to take hold. How would you keep Walt Van Aert, Peter Sagan, you know, these, these guys who still want to be competitive in these sprints and still want to have a chance at the green Jersey. How do you maintain that, that balance and keep them fast? Or is it just like, I no, I think I think I think you know you 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 have to monitor that that progress and you have to kind of flag it before it's too late. So you have to flag like we did the same like you know if we have some examples for Greipel for example where every season we had to pull like the stop sign onto the race program and really get them out of the racing and back get them back into the gym and get them back into into sprint training because also during the season during this and this is how it starts like during the season. His, his 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 sprinting power, sprint capacity, his glycolytic capacity would drop, and then in the and then so think about it. If this drops, and then start of the next season, you don't bring it back to one hundred percent, but only ninety five percent. Each year, you you will lose a little bit. So it starts with monitoring it, and starts with accepting, and that goes for everything, not only for sprinting. Starts with accepting that what you did last year or two years ago. My, and which worked successfully in training might not work anymore as good and you need to change because you have changed. Um, so it, it, yeah, it also means that, you know, maybe later in your career, you need to do more stuff in the gym or more sprinting. Like it's the beginning of a career. Sprinting maybe came naturally. You were younger, you were faster, it's easier. But when you grow, get older, you need to maybe, you know, train for that, but before it came naturally to you. And this is the thing is that you, you need to, be watching that data very, very closely as it's coming in on a day-to-day basis. You know, I mean, now for me, from my point of view is I, I test athletes way more than I should, you know, when there's something really important to watch and, and athletes don't like that, right? I'm testing their critical power once a week. And the important thing I'm testing way more commonly than that, because I want to catch it before it goes off the rails. I mean, Sebastian's exactly right. If you let the, the cow out of the barn, you're in big trouble. And, and a bigger problem, I think guys, and this, this, this happens to almost everybody is when you get stronger, you can hold steady state power more. You can finish higher on the climbs. There's an addiction to that. There's an excitement about improving your lactic threshold or your improving, improving your FTP that everybody likes. But if they really analyzed how to be successful, especially in American racing or group rides or big events, it's your kick at the end that determines your place once you're strong enough to stay with the pack. So I think a lot of people are so focused on their FTP that it's really easy to lose the more critical component to success, which is some of that explosiveness. So I think, you know, one of the takeaways that hopefully people are going to get from this is keep some, keep some gunpowder in your legs. And it's really easy to lose the gunpowder if you don't get to the gym, if you don't do the high intensity sprint work, if you don't do some of that glycolytic work, some of that creatine phosphate work, because that's a lot of times the difference between a top three result and a top 100 result. And, and, and I appreciate both of your time today, guys. It was awesome. I love the idea. What I'm going to try to do is, is mathematically model um, and get some animations around this race and, and, and show it to you guys. And hopefully we can kind of feed it in to this podcast. But any closing remarks here before we shut it down? Good, Sebastian. Thank you for the yeah, no, I, ju- I can just I can just uh, comment uh, on the on the thing you said last year, Rob- Robbie, with the with the, you know the FTP in the cycling race. In a cycling race, you never actually write it your FTP. 
except for maybe partially partially in a climb or a long TT, but most people never write that's the FTP. And you know, all, all these talks that we had today about the eight hundred meters in marathon and what Phil shared about breaking two, I didn't hear the, the word FTP a lot as well. Right? <laughs> there were other things that 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 have been important. Um, so yeah, um, totally agree to that. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, you know, just to touch on the FTP thing, there's more and more literature coming out that it's really not a valid physiological threshold, you know, in its own right. It, it tells you a little bit of information, but uh, and it can be useful as kind of a rule of thumb, but in the real world, it doesn't necessarily do that. Whereas doing some of this other math, you know, that anyone can do if they've got Excel, um, that gives you important information about how to, like, especially in running about how to beat the people around you. You know, people have often asked me, Steve, like you weren't an athlete. You know, in fact, you're a terrible athlete. How did you coach all these like world champions? And it's literally because I've got Microsoft Excel and Google. (laughs) I go and I find out what these runners are capable of and I make them and I make the model and I say, yeah, your critical power is higher. You should start out fast and run their legs off. And then I look at you. Nope, you've got a better sprint capacity. Get in front of everyone, surge a couple times and scare them so they think you're stronger than you are and then wait for the sprint. And this is literally all it takes a lot of the time, especially in age group racing, you know, and people just have to be, <laughs> be a little sneaky, you know? For sure. I, I think at the end of the day, we all understand the importance of, of using your brain. Um, and, and when it comes to performance, it training, it's such an important component to success. That's for sure. VO2 max and all these other things are important, but I'll take the guy who's a, a racer at heart um, and, and who can maximize all these other elements over the guy with the, with the highest VO2 max. That's for sure. But in closing, it was a great to speak with both of you. If you want to catch our breaking up with FTP, Look back at one of our old podcasts that Sebastian and I have done. That was a good one. Again, it surfaces again today, um, the importance or the not importance of FTP. But I really appreciate your time. I love this thought of Kipchoge versus Bolt. I think the information, the math was great. The learnings were great. And I really appreciate you guys continuing to teach me as well as being guests here on the Velocity Podcast. So thank you. Thanks, Robbie. Good to see you. Take care, Sebastian. Thank you.